everyone. Welcome to the second debate of the 2021 China Power Conference. I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you for joining us today. Our debate today focuses on China's crackdown of its technology firms. Last year, Chinese regulators stunned the financial world when they blocked what was poised to be the world's largest IPO by preventing Ant Group from listing on the Hong Kong and Shanghai stock exchanges. The move came after its founder, Jack Ma, criticized the government's stance on financial risk. This is only, the, this is only one of the moves by Beijing in a sweeping crackdown and regulatory reform campaign aimed at major technology companies. In April 2021, Chinese regulators issued a $2.8 billion fine against Alibaba in an anti-monopoly probe. Then in early July, 2021 this year, days after Didi Chuxing listed on the New York Stock Exchange, Beijing initiated a probe into the company's cybersecurity practices and ordered it to halt new user signups. In the past week, Didi announced that it will delist from the New York Stock Exchange and move to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. At the same time, we also saw that China has rolled out a number of new restrictions and fines on technology companies. Some analysts believe that crackdowns would deter technology investors and stifle innovation in China, while others forecast that the crackdown may ultimately prove, improve the innovative capabilities of Chinese companies and outweigh any short-term drawbacks. Today's debate is on the proposition Beijing's crackdown on technology firms will significantly stifle Chinese technological and scientific innovation. I hope that all of you will take a moment now to, uh, I hope that you will join us for this entirety of this debate. So uh, let me now first, before we go into the debate, uh, start a uh, poll on this debate and you should see a pop-up uh, relatively uh, shortly on your screen. Um, sorry, one second. So you should see the poll pop up on your screen. The poll has two options. Uh, first, if you agree with the statement, as well as the second option of if you disagree. I, I will give you a couple of seconds to look at this poll before moving on to introducing our speakers. Okay, so to, to join, uh, joining us today for this debate are two speakers. First, we have uh, Mr. Matt Sheehan a fellow for the Asia program at the Carney Endowment for International Peace. He will argue that Beijing's crackdown on technology firms will significantly stifle Chinese technological and scientific innovation. Matt's research re examines China's artificial intelligence uh, ecosystem, the future of Chinese technology policy, and the role of technology in China's political economy. Matt is the author of the Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. From 2010 to 2016, Matt lived and worked in China, including as the first China correspondent for the World Post. After returning from China, Matt worked as a fellow at the Paulson Institute's think tank, Marco Polo, where he led research on Chinese technology issues. We're also delighted to have us today with us today, Ms. Ray Ma, a China tech analyst and the main writer and co-host for Tech Buzz in China. She will argue that Beijing's crackdown on technology firms will not significantly stifle Chinese technological and scientific innovation. In 2018, Ray started TechBuzz China to educate investors, funds, and entrepreneurs on Chinese tech com companies with original insights and research. She previously worked at 500 startups as the investment partner 
and start spent a decade in private equity and mergers and acquisitions, uh, including at the Rain Group, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, in both Silicon Valley and China. Ray holds a BS in electrical engineering and computer science from the University of California at Berkeley and has held additional degrees from Tsinghua as well as Harvard University. Thank you, Matt and Ray, for taking the time to join us today. So I want to note here that we asked Matt and Ray to take specific for and against positions in this debate. We understand that their actual personal views uh, are much more nuanced and they're captured by a simple yes or no to the proposition. So let me now end the poll and I'll share the poll results. Uh, so you should now see the uh, poll results on your screen. Uh, sorry, do folks see the poll results? Shows 0% for both for me. Okay, so maybe the polling did not quite work. Um, one second. Okay. I just restarted the poll uh, and let me, and my apologies that this is, did not work. So let me give another couple of, uh, let me get this one minute for folks to poll. Okay, great. We have about an 85% response rate and my apologies for the technical glitch. I think we will have to move on. So I'm gonna end the poll in 10 seconds. So for those who haven't polled, I'll give you another couple of seconds to poll. Great, let me share the results. Uh, so from what I'm seeing on my end is that 57% of those online joining us today at the webinar agree with the proposition and about 43% disagree with the proposition. Okay, uh, Hannah, can we pull up the poll results from uh, our Twitter? So in the past couple of days, we also ran a poll on Twitter. So we would like to also display those results. On Twitter, what we saw is actually quite similar to the, to the live poll results. We saw 52.5% agreed with the proposition and 47.5% disagreed. So with that, I think it's still a relatively um, split uh, debate uh, in terms of ingoing views. Um, so let me turn to Matt to help kick us off of the debate. And just before Matt speaks, uh, let me give you a quick uh, preview of the format. Matt will speak for about 10 to 15 minutes laying out his case for why this uh, preposition, for why he believes that, um, that uh, this crackdown will stifle innovation in uh, China. And then after that, Ray will also present for 10 to 15 minutes. And then after that, we will have a um, period of rebuttals where each, each side, Matt and Ray will have about five minutes to present. And then we will go into Q&A. So Matt, over to you. Great. Um, thanks so much for having me, Bonnie and, and Hannah and everyone at CIS, CSIS for putting this together. I'm a, I've watched these debates for a while. I'm a big fan, so I appreciate you bringing me on. Um, with that said, I've been put in a very unfortunate position today of having to debate uh, the great Ray Ma on China tech issues. Ray's one of the people who I've probably learned the most from when it comes to Chinese tech and, and Chinese companies. So normally when she's talking, I like to be in the audience just kind of nodding along uh, but I don't have that option today um, because they asked me to take this side. And also because I think there are some, there's some sort of deep and almost like a, it's like a phase change in Chinese technology uh, that I think it's worth sort of picking apart. And I think it's going to have big implications for both the pace of innovation and the direction of innovation. And I'm going to try to tease out at least a couple of those today. Um, I'm going to share some slides here just to get started. 
are you able to see those slides now? All right. Um, so, you know, Bonnie ran us through some of the crackdowns that have happened over the last year. I'm not going to kind of piece through them one by one, but just to shout out a few. Uh, it's been, I think of it as like a kaleidoscope almost because you kind of get dizzy looking at it, but we've had the, the crackdown on Ant Financial, sort of forcing them to pull their IPO, uh, the DD crackdown just after they'd listed on the US stock exchange, banning them from the app store, eventually kind of pushing them to delist. Um, we've had a bunch of antitrust and anti-competitive actions against pretty much all the big platforms. I think that's one of the real main thrusts of it. Um, you know, crackdown on online education, on gaming, the, the whole mix of things. So, you know, today I'm taking the position that this will stifle Chinese innovation, but first I just kind of wanted to lay out what I'm not going to do in this argument, what I'm not arguing for. Um, I'm certainly not going to run through every one of these crackdowns and try to get the exact sort of directional push of it. What's the impact on investors? Because it's, it's a real mixed bag. It's a grab bag. Some pushing, you know, totally different directions for different motivations. We're not going to run through each one of these. Um, I'm also not going to argue what I think is kind of gets bandied about a little bit, which is just the idea that, you know, with this heavy handed state intervention, you're really killing off incentives to innovate, um, that by cracking down the big giants, you're going to kind of crush the desire of people to found new startups and to keep things going. I, I don't think that's true. I think actually a lot of the anti-competitive stuff that's been done, especially against Ali and Tencent, the kind of uh, cracking down on Arshin E, where you have to kind of pick whether you take investment or whether you sell on one of the two platforms, but you can't do both. That kind of stuff is breaking that sort of uh, duopoly is actually probably very good for Chinese tech. Um, I'm also not going to argue that overall, even though this might be bad for Chinese innovation or stifle Chinese innovation, I wouldn't argue that it's necessarily, quote, bad for China. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of trade-offs here, and if you trade some innovation for more data protection or consumer protection or worker protection, that can all be very good things. And so it's not sort of a, you know, innovation is the absolute position either. Um, but what I am arguing is that behind all of these crackdowns, if we really take a step back and try to think about a little bit of the sort of strategic logic or the strategic backdrop, I think one thing that unites them and that kind of puts them in focus is a major push by the Chinese government uh, in terms of the strategic direction of what it wants its tech industry to be. And you see this laid out in the 14th five-year plan and other places where what I would argue is that it's pushing and trying to incentivize a shift in focus from consumer technology towards deep tech and industrial tech or industrial applications of emerging technology. Um, I think that that is the sort of big strategic backdrop to it. And specifically, I think with that shift, with that forced move, kind of maybe moving earlier than, than it would sort of naturally move, you're going to see Chinese tech shifting away from some of its sort of core competencies, what Chinese tech is best at. And I think that China's sort of model for innovation, the pattern of how China has made so much progress in other areas, that model and that pattern just won't fit quite as well into these new areas, into deep tech and industrial tech. Um, so that's kind of the big argument. We're trying to initiate a shift here. The Chinese government is trying to initiate a shift and the existing model won't work as well in these new areas and therefore will sort of slow down innovation. So first up, just kind of making this distinction between consumer tech and sort of the deep and industrial tech. 2010 to 2020 was really the heyday for consumer tech in China. This is a lot of the time that I spent living there. And most of us are very familiar with this stuff because we use it. You know, it's, it's WeChat, it's live stream e-commerce, it's shared bikes, it's 
all it's big platform companies making products that are either sort of ad supported or at the very least are targeting uh, sort of the masses, targeting all consumers and trying to drum up more consumption. So the big platforms were a lot of the big winners here and their target is always, you know, the masses of users building one product sort of for everybody. And I think what the CCP and the Chinese government would really like to see done, and this is something I wrote about even before the tech crackdown began, is a shift towards deep and industrial tech. That's a little bit more distant from our lives. So deep tech, kind of the classic example is semiconductors and semiconductor manufacturing equipment, sort of the foundation of, you know, the modern technology economy is the ability to sort of deploy semiconductors and China's had that supply threatened. So they're making a big push into um, advanced semiconductors and the equipment needed to manufacture them. This has been a huge winner of the tech crackdown. There's, it's never been easier to raise money for a semiconductor startup than right now. Um, other areas in the more industrial tech side are these type of you know, pick and place robots, all different components of advanced manufacturing that China's hoping to really sort of upgrade its industrial base, get another sort of 10, 15 years on the made in China wave. Um, and maybe more obscure things like, you know, ag tech, uh, food tech, this is, you know, drones for, uh, for agricultural uses. But I think big picture, this is the shift that China is trying to initiate, but I think the model is not going to work quite as well in these areas. And, and to sort of fill out that argument, we need to know what the model is. So I'm going to lay it out here in sort of three steps or three pieces that I think have been part of the big waves in, in digital innovation and consumer tech innovation. Um, as I'm laying these out, the two sort of big examples you can keep in mind is maybe like the big mobile internet boom in China and the big sort of AI boom, especially in the sort of 2017 and beyond. Um, these were huge bursts in startup activity. These were huge bursts in innovation, in business model innovation, feature innovation, and technical innovation. And so those are the kind of models that I'm thinking of. So I think it starts, the kind of core of these is a pretty general purpose technology. So in the case of mobile internet, that's you know 3G, 4G, and the, the popularization of mobile phones um, or mobile phones that uh, are internet enabled in AI, this is sort of deep learning. So you have a general purpose technology that can really be applied to so many different use cases, so many different business cases all throughout society. So that kind of comes first. And as the business cases of these are, are sort of proved, you have a sort of a rush and a pile in from investors and entrepreneurs in China. So we've seen this in a bunch of areas, you know, we saw it in the sort of the Groupon phase, you saw it with the shared bikes in China, you saw it, you know, P2P lending. This is where obviously, you know, money always goes to where there's money to be made, whatever the country is. But in China, I think you have a pretty unique situation where uh, a business model is proved, it is a very quick and very sort of overwhelming rush of new startup activity and new investment into the space. There's a lot of copying of each other's stuff. There's a lot of sort of iterating on the business models, finding every way to squeeze money out of the new innovation. And then I think the last sort of phase of it is usually when the government catches on really after the private sector and it kind of adds fuel to the fire. I think it was the, the Diao phase of, uh, of a sort of digital boom in China. So, you know, in the mobile internet era, this is when Li Keqiang and the government sort of pushed the Shuang Chuang innovation. They're sort of incentivizing innovation and startup formation or in AI, it was the release of the big AI plan. And this, um, it's not just about kind of the way we normally think of subsidies, the government supporting businesses. It's about the government telling entrepreneurs all throughout the Chinese bureaucracy, hey, we've got this great sort of general purpose technology, find some way to promote it, find some way to apply it in your work. And because they are so sort of all purpose, the technologies, it's pretty easy to do. You know, with mobile internet, 
if you're in the tax bureau, you suddenly make let you hook your sort of tax payment system into WeChat, or if you're in the train bureau, you allow people to book train tickets through WeChat. With AI, you know, if you're in the surveillance or if you're in the security services, you buy surveillance equipment. If you're in the traffic area, you try to sort of smartify your traffic grid. You have a kind of an all of government push to kind of promote the technology and. I think when this process is happening, you know, in mobile internet, this is kind of 2012 to 2017 ish in AI, it's kind of 2017 to 2020. This can look extremely messy and extremely wasteful as a process, um, because there's so much sort of uh, copying of business models, copying of products. But I think my argument is that it, it actually does work well in those areas, because when the sort of the dust settles, a lot of companies have been born and died in a very short span of time. Um, and maybe there was waste on individual products or projects, but as a whole, the, the ecosystem has kind of leveled up and it has applied this technology and has had tons of new innovative applications, tons of new innovative products and companies. I think that's, that's the established pattern, but I think this is not going to work quite as well when it comes to deep tech and consumer tech. There's a lot of different angles to that, but I think trying to sort of pull it into one concept, the thing that kept coming to mind for me is uh, sort of elasticity of innovation in a way. And I'm gonna mess around with some econ concepts here. Economists don't at me. I know this is not exactly what it means, but uh, just as a sort of a, a tool for thinking about it. Elasticity is usually, you know, as you change the price signal in a market, how much does the output of something change? If it's very elastic, a little price change changes the output a lot. In an innovation context, I think of it in terms of, basically when you increase the inputs to this market or to this system, how much does innovation increase along with it? And I think in the consumer internet era, these type of consumer internet general purpose type things were very elastic in this sense. The Chinese government or Chinese private sector could throw a lot more resources at it. It could throw more investment. It could throw more engineers. It could throw more sort of public contracts or public, public adaptation of technology. And it led to a lot more innovation. And so it was kind of, I think of it as being a elastic, consumer tech being elastic in that sense. I think deep tech especially, but also industrial tech are significantly less elastic. You can throw a lot more inputs at it. You can throw more investment. You can throw more people. You can throw more companies at it. You're not guaranteed to have the same kind of payoff. You're going to have less, you know, it's going to be much more incremental. And uh, in some areas, there's just no guarantee it will work out at all when you're talking about real sort of deep tech uh, innovation in this space. So just to kind of you know, tease this out, why might this be? I think one of the biggest things is basically how many people in society or how many entities or actors in society are positioned to, to leverage this technology. And I think um, with deep tech, especially with semiconductors and semiconductor manufacturing equipment, there just aren't that many good places to throw money. Consumer internet, you could throw money at a lot of different young college grads or young engineers, and they would do something with it. Semiconductors and other areas of detect, they require a much more specialized set of skills. And you can't just kind of throw money around and expect it to turn into something. I think um, it's also, it, it requires much longer time scales. I think that's a big one. Um, as kind of an example of this, I'll throw up the extreme ultraviolet lithography machine. This is probably some of you have heard about this, a once obscure technical machine that's now uh, at the center of a lot of US China tensions. This is the, the machine that allows companies to do the etching on the most advanced semiconductors. And it's China's been cut off from imports of this because only one single company in the world can make this machine, a Dutch company called ASML. 
And this is kind of the epitome of deep tech, something that takes a very, very long time of very in-depth research to produce. And, and China would love to have these machines. I think the Chinese government would instantly trade Alibaba for access to EUV photolithography machines. But it's, it's just not that easy. It can't be bought and it can't be kind of conjured in the same way. You know, in ASL, ASML, they started research on these in the 2000s. It was five years before they had their first prototype. It was 14 years before they had their first customer order. And in that time span, everyone else in the world who was trying to make this basically gave up and fell off on it. And it took you know, 16 years before they made their first machine or they shipped their first commercial machine, but it was worth it. I think this is the kind of thing that it's like trying to, I think of you know, throwing more at it, it's like trying to squeeze more and more toothpaste through a very narrow tube. Uh, you know, the, the size of the tube, I guess, is like the amount of social resources and mobilization you have around this. But in the end, it, only so much can come out. And I think that's the phase we might be entering as China moves into this. I think with industrial tech applications, you know, robotics, uh, ag tech, et cetera, it's a bit more mixed bag. You know, you can throw more resources at that and expect more outputs. But I do think it's going to be much slower and a much more of a slog than is has been the case for the last 10 years. So, you know, I think it's still to be seen. Right now, we've still seen VC investment has been very robust. Startup creation has been very robust. But I think that's that. it remains to be seen if that holds up as people try to make robotic startups. You know, you can sort of discover that whatever, shared bikes or something is a new thing and everyone's rushing into it, P2P lending. It's very easy to make a prototype, a mock-up. Everybody floods in. You have a bunch of products. You rapidly iterate. You can't really do that with, like, you know, a robotics system. You can't suddenly have teams all over the country whipping up prototypes overnight and flooding into it. So whether or not VCs are sort of patient enough, whether or not you're gonna have undergrads switching into mechanical engineering, agricultural engineering, that's a big open question. I do think we'll see a significant break on innovation. Um, and I wanna go over, so just a very quick recap. I think the strategic backdrop here is a shift from consumer tech into deep tech, industrial tech. I think China's sort of pattern of innovation won't work as well in these areas. That's, you know, throw up this concept of elasticity of innovation. I think that's the problem here is it's you're going to hit more bottlenecks in, in sort of creation of startups and whatnot. And I think this might be a necessary shift from China's perspective. You need these semiconductors, whether you like it or not. So I think they're basically going to trade off sort of upside of pace of innovation for more sort of technological security in a way. Um, that's all I got for now. Looking forward to Ray's talk. Thank you very much, Matt. That was a really great discussion. And I love the last slide on the recap in case folks didn't catch all the main points you made. I, th I thought that was brilliant. Uh, so let me now turn the floor to Ray for your uh, opening comments. Uh, and uh, after 15 minutes, we'll then uh, switch to rebuttals, turning it back to Matt. So Ray, over to you. Thank you. Hi, thanks. Uh, I am a bigger fan of Matt, I think. <laughs> so uh, thanks, Matt, for taking the uh, opposing side. I know there's a lot of nuance to your views. I thought that was a fantastic presentation. I did think that you didn't address exactly the regulations uh, impact on innovation, though, and more of the general uh, Chinese uh, sort of system. So I think for my 15 minutes, I'll start off with uh, basically only the regulations and then maybe in the rebuttal time, I can address some of the points that Matt raised, which I think are very clever and really great points uh, about the Chinese innovation system in general. So, okay, so um, I didn't have a presentation, but I do have a few slides that are 
better seen visually, but the three sections I'm going to go over are one, um, when we talk about tech regulations from Beijing, what are we talking about, what they're actually doing? Like Matt, I'm not going to go over the specific details, but I'll bucket them into categories so you can more easily understand why I think that the regulations don't impact innovation. Um, and then two, I will actually go into what the Chinese tech ecosystem looks like, what's shaping up to go forward. I do have some overlapping uh, conclusions as Matt, but I think the, or I have some overlapping data, I should say, but the conclusions are going to be slightly different. Uh, and then uh, finally, I'll go into what I think the general criteria are needed for innovation systems, ecosystems to thrive. And I think Chinese regulations actually have been a well positioned for that. So first, on the subject of tech regulations from Beijing, I generally personally segment that into three buckets, which I think are very easy to remember. So the first one is what I call Chinese idiosyncratic uh, reforms, right? So these are results of different social norms, role of the state, or reactions to China-specific issues, such as a demographic crisis going on there. Uh, and regulations that fall into this bucket would be, for example, after-school tutoring, getting turned into nonprofits, implementing gaming restrictions for minors, and uh, I would probably include a DDD listing as one of those as well. Um, the second bucket, though, I would put in uh, in terms of regulations is keeping up with the West. So that's what I call it anyway. Um, it's basically either rectification of previous regulatory gaps uh, or updating rules. So things like uh, the rules that went into regulating ant group and making it so that the company needed to put in more money into uh into the lending instead of just relying on third parties or updating the rules such as antitrust, um, you know, banning two choose one and uh, rectifying some of the privacy loopholes that existed in China. Uh, there might be some variations here, but the large intent is to be on regulatory parity with uh, the West, with the developed countries and developed economies. And finally, we have standard setting for new technologies. So for emerging technologies where there are no footsteps for China to follow, so they can't you know, look at and say, we want to make China's GDPR, um, China's not, is actually really intent on not leaving the regulations of these emerging technologies to other nations. And they, they actually really want to be first and foremost in establishing some uh, legal standards. And uh, the hope, I think, is that with the immense market power that China has, and assuming the rules are, uh, you know, very reasonable, and that, that it will set enough of a precedent for to shape the future trajectory of uh, regulations for these technologies worldwide. So in the future, people will be, uh, other countries will be uh, making laws that are, you know, their version of some Chinese law versus Right now, primarily what China is doing is a Chinese version of a European or a US law. So they want to take a more leadership role in standard setting. Now, if we look at each of these three buckets in detail, uh, what I can say is that most of the uproar or investor uh, panic has been actually in the first category, right? And the first category is uh, primarily, I would say, from two rulings. One is the EdTech, the uh, after-school tutoring, uh, ban basically, and then the other one is the uh, gaming uh, situation. And however, if you look into each of these in detail, for example, into gaming, you'll see that this is a rule that's been uh, put into motion since over a decade ago. 
And what's happened is that it couldn't be executed until the uh, country had a uniformed database for players and games to plug into. And when that was um, finally put together, uh, like two, three years ago, that's when there became like greater momentum for this to be codified into you know much harsher uh, rules with punitive measures, and that's what we saw. But this is by no means, if you are someone who has been keeping track of the industry, a sudden thing. This is this is a thing that's been uh, hinted at and not even hinted at, but explicitly mentioned will happen for the past decade plus. Now, uh, most of the rules I would say are are usually in that vein. The exception is the after-school tutoring one. So a lot of people will say, well, because of the after-school tutoring ban came about so suddenly, this will uh, you know, crush entrepreneurs' desire to uh, start companies. But what I would say is, while that might be true, that is really only uh, applicable to that specific space. Because again, this is a very idiosyncratic rule that was applied only to a very specific type of business. And as I'll show you later, uh, education at tech in general is actually a very small part of investment in, uh, in China in the last couple of years. At its height, it was about 20% of invested dollars. But if we go into the early stage investment area where you know, it's a better proxy for innovation activity, it, the, the highest it was was about six to seven percent in 2014 and it's never been more than one or two percent of total venture dollars deployed in the last uh, in the last four or five years so uh, on to the second bucket keeping up with the west i really don't think this needs that much explanation um, antitrust rules uh, is really about increasing competitiveness right uh you know uh, fintech rules are about Making man, managing the systemic risk in the financial markets. So you would have to be on you know someone like Zuckerberg's side if you think antitrust hurts uh, tech companies. And even he says that you know pretty much that it hurts only Facebook. He doesn't say it'll hurt all entrepreneurs, right? So clearly these regulations are meant actually to uh, increase the competition in the ecosystem, and it should benefit. Uh, small entrepreneurs and innovation, new innovations. And in fact, when you talk to uh, VCs and entrepreneurs anecdotally, that is what they believe, uh, that there is a lot more opportunity now that the large platforms no longer can engage in these monopolistic practices. Now, the final one, standard setting for future technologies, I think is actually very uh, positive uh, for uh, people working on emerging technologies, actually. So again, the earlier China puts in place sensible and reasonable rules that other countries adopt, the more it gives Chinese companies a head start because presumably everyone's going to eventually have rules on algorithmic governance. China just has a more accelerated timetable and because of its uh, the nature of the, the state there may be able to get um, uh, these rules passed and companies to comply earlier. So the longer you have in figuring out how to comply, then um, the longer time you have into uh, in figuring out how to build into your business products, uh, business models and products. And I think that is actually really helpful for uh, for Chinese companies going forward. Again, China is a very large market with a, with a huge user base and uh, some not small amount of influence, especially on neighboring countries. But I think if you look deeply into these, some of these regulations, especially again, without AI algorithms uh, that were mentioned, 
you see that the discussions are very similar in US and Europe. It's just that it looks like China is going to get a head start into implementing them, therefore giving hopefully Chinese um, companies a head start, or at least that's the hope there, I think. Um, so after, so that's the basic regulations. Um, what I want to talk about next are, okay, Chinese entrepreneurs, what are they actually working on? So this uh, dovetails nicely with what Matt described. Uh, I think there is a big bias amongst uh, many folks because of the word, you know, when we say tech in the U.S., they, people think of internet companies, people think of Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera. And, it, and for China, actually, it's even skewed further because, as Matt mentioned, the last decade, um, China has been primarily the leader in mobile internet companies specifically, right? So uh, when smartphones came out in 2007, um, 2011 was the year that China's uh, China topped the world in global smartphone shipments. And that whole decade, the last 10 years, has really seen China innovate and be a leader in digital technologies uh, on the mobile internet. Uh, companies like ByteDance and H1 were founded in 2010 and 2012, and uh, respectively. However, by 2015, it's already clear for those investing in and participating in Chinese uh, internet uh, ecosystem that this so-called mobile internet dividend, which stands for the fact that basically so many users are coming online, you're going to grow as at least as fast as the entire market, uh, was going to end shortly. In fact, that was probably the first year where you already have headlines in Chinese venture capital asking, what's next? The second half of the mobile internet is already here. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight, and we can see what came next. So, um, Hannah, if you can help me just show the slides I have prepared. Yeah, so we can already see what happened next because we can see that um, th this is a little bit hard to read because I included all the categories. Uh, this is from uh, the Chinese uh, venture capital database I teach you, but you can see that the uh, 2014 is sort of like the first year where Chinese venture capital really took off. But 2021, year to date, we can see that if we prorate it, it's actually going to be a record high year for, for China. This is for all total VCP investment in China. If you go to the next slide, I put this into, uh, yeah, I put this into um, stacked bar charts so you can see the change in the industries. So it's actually organized by uh, the year 2014. So beginning, I, I organized it by uh, the highest number of uh, investment dollars deployed as a percentage of capital. And then I just kept it constant. But you can see the in 2014, it was e-commerce, right, accounting for a huge percentage of uh, dollars. And then um, you can see that really, really shifted over the next couple years to the point where basically by 2015, actually next year, it's become much smaller. And, and by currently, the large uh, the largest categories are very consistently advanced manufacturing, enterprise software, and healthcare. Now, you might say, hey, Ray, these are total VCP investments. That's not really indicative of innovation, which is what we're talking about. Well, um, Hannah, if you can go down two more slides. I ordered it a little, yeah, I messed up the order. Um, I, I took now uh, seed through series B, which are the, the traditional, which, oh, sorry, which is the traditional definition of early stage investment and, you know, great proxy for innovation. And uh, you can see that the, the bars actually look a, 
a little different because again, we're not including late stage uh, strategic investments, et cetera, but this actually makes it even more obvious, right? We don't even have to prorate 2021 and you can see the number of venture dollars is already uh, at a record high. Uh, again, if you go to the slide before, this makes it even more clear. I don't know if you remember, <laughs> just from two slides ago, but I don't know if you remember, again, um, I organized this chart the same way by 2014 by the largest uh, category to the smallest. Um, the category is a little bit different here because again, this is by early stage uh, innovation. But as you can see also, uh, we are starting off with finance in 2014 as you know one of the larger categories. But by the time you get to 2018, 2019, uh, or actually even starting 2017, it's very, very obvious that the, the, the largest categories are health, again, same, same as before, uh, health, healthcare, enterprise software, and um, advanced manufacturing. In fact, uh, I have some data for you, which is that if oh, you, can, you can stop the slides, I guess. So uh, in, in fact, what I can share with you is that, so um, I did the uh, total number of dollars, right? So it's about $75 billion this year, if we prorate it. Uh, which is again, all time record high. Healthcare was up 9X in the last five years. Advanced manufacturing's up 18X. Advanced manufacturing does include categories like semiconductors, which Matt talked about in his part. Uh, enterprise software is up 5X. And um, the next two categories are motor vehicles, which includes a lot of, uh, as you might expect, electrical vehicles up 6X and local services, uh, which are more like lifestyle delivery, services, that's also up 6x. So those five categories alone account for 75% of venture dollars, early stage venture dollars deployed in China. And none of these categories were impacted by the Chinese idiosyncratic regulations. And they are, I would say, either neutral or perhaps even net winners from the other categories of regulations, such as the ones uh, where, you know, keeping up with the West, right? So uh, the the antitrust stuff actually help, for example, uh, local services and um, maybe some healthcare as well. So all, again, the bulk, the vast, vast majority of Chinese uh, early stage innovation right now, I would say is not, are not affected by the regulations and are in fact uh, net beneficiaries. Um, I think I took a little bit longer than I thought. So I don't know if you guys want me to continue with the rest of my argument or save it for a rebuttal. Uh, so thank you very much. If you could, we could save it for the rebuttals. Okay. And um, yeah, I think there's quite a, a lot for discussion. And I really, really liked the uh, how you group the PRC regulations in the three buckets and very clear distillation of who are the net winners and losers among the buckets. So let me, in the interest of time, turn it to Matt for his rebuttals. And then I'll turn it back to you, Ray, for uh, your rebuttals, and if you want to elaborate a little bit more on the arguments that you weren't able to get to. So Matt, over to you first. Sure thing. Um, yeah, I, I really like that. I, I needed that grouping into buckets as well. I tried to do that myself and I couldn't get anything that, uh, oh, oh yeah, I'm on. Okay, I thought I was muted for a second. Um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't come up with things that were quite as consistent as that. So I do think that's very helpful. I think maybe the I don't know if this is so much as a rebuttal as like a question that to me is very, it's very much an open question. And I don't, I think the answer might not bode well for Chinese tech, which is how many different areas can the government sort of 
removed from the equation before it starts both limiting the, the sort of the space that Chinese tech has to play and also before this sort of uncertainty about what comes next starts impacting VC dollars and new startup formation and sort of deep tech. So, you know, I think probably if you'd gone back in time a year or two ago and you asked me or you'd ask, you know, uh, maybe some a Chinese person or an investor, you know, what's the government's sort of stance on education? It's like very, very pro education. And you'd think that ed tech is an area that will probably have sort of continued support long term. There were these, you know, nuances of a lot of like class issues around who has access to this stuff. But, you know, was it really predictable that, uh, you know, they would that sort of class consideration or the pressure on children, that type of thing would so overwhelm areas? I don't think that was totally predictable. Some people sort of go back in time and kind of can rework it. But you take an area like EdTech that I, I think a lot of people would think of as very promising and suddenly just kind of take it off the board. Um, I think maybe similar things with gaming. I, I wouldn't say gaming has been sort of taken off the board, but they definitely took a, you know, took a large bite out of it, specifically games targeted at kids. And, you know, if you were to ask VCs or, or entrepreneurs, you know, going forward, what do you think the Chinese government's stance is going, attitude is going to be towards gaming? Um, I think it's a pretty open question. I, I wouldn't be totally surprised if they took a much harder line of maybe not just limiting, you know, uh, hours of gaming for kids. For people who, uh, who don't follow this closely, I believe the regulation is kids can only play from 8 to 9 p.m. on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and no other times. Pretty, pretty strict parenting right there. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we learned, you know, in the near future that the CCP considers uh, gaming writ large to be spiritual opium, or they consider VR or the metaverse to be spiritual opium that kind of distracts from the real world and the real economy. Maybe similar things to fintech. Uh, you know, the ant financial thing might be a little bit idiosyncratic, uh, some personalities at play. But I do think fintech's another area where there was a lot of innovation going on, and suddenly it looks a lot scarier founding a new startup in that space and thinking you're going to have you know years and years of runway to sort of explore the field. So I guess my question is like, how many of these areas can China take off the table before it really starts impacting? you know, new investment and new startup formulation. For a long time, you know, most of the time that I lived in China and probably most of the time we're familiar with China, there was kind of one, you know, big divide. It's like there's political stuff over here and there's everything else over here. And you stay on that side of the line. Yeah, maybe it's a little iffy exactly where the line is sometimes, you know, apps or companies will push it and they'll get pushed back. You know, we saw that with sort of the Weibo crackdown in 2012, 13, but it was, it was kind of like a one dimensional divide. Now, as just it kind of seems, I think, to an outsider, a little bit more like, you know, what is Xi Jinping or Wang Huning or the Politburo saying? What, what, what do they have on their minds this month? What do they think is bad for China or bad for children or bad for everything? And as you have to play that kind of guessing game, uh, I do think it's going to impact things. I think the 2021 VC numbers are impressive, and that does, you know, it's it's been very resilient thus far. But I, I don't think it's. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a sort of a thing that can continue indefinitely without consequences, I guess is how I put that. So that would be sort of one big area is how many areas can you take away? I think there's something of a little bit of an argument about sort of killing off the cash cows of big companies. When you look, I mean, I, I, I don't want to always reference back to AI just because that's what I spend my time on. But when you look at like AI research, cutting edge AI research, by far the biggest single sort of institution globally contributing to that is Google. Um, they were early on autonomous vehicles, the same way in China, Baidu was early on autonomous vehicles. 
And the reason why they're able to do that, be able to pour money into research that is going to be published openly for everyone or pour money into moonshot projects like autonomous vehicles is because as platforms, they are cash cows and they can just kind of print money on one side and then spend it on interesting things or long-term research over there. And, you know, if you take a bite out of Tencent's cash cow via gaming, or if you take a bite out of Ali's cash cow by you know, forcing it to spin off different entities, you are basically reducing the resources that they have to put into sort of deep tech investment, long-term moonshot type investments. And I think that's going to have a cost. You know, it partly depends what type of innovation do you care about. If you want, you know, 10 new e-commerce startups, you probably should take a bite out of Alibaba. If you want them to invest in sort of smart city development and uh, like long-term goals when it comes to energy storage and stuff like that, you probably want to let them kind of keep printing money in that way. So, yeah, I guess that's what I'd throw out there in the rebuttal. It's basically these might be, you know, the education thing, they might be idiosyncratic China things, but how many idiosyncratic China things can you take away before it starts having an impact? And I think we're going to see that going forward. And when it comes to kind of the access to resources for the big companies, you keep taking away their cash cows, they're going to uh, stop doing a lot of the research that I think China maybe ultimately wants or that drives innovation in sort of deeper or more long-term areas. I'll leave it there. Thank you, Matt. Ray, over to you. Okay, all right. Uh, really good points, Matt. I will address them in time. Meanwhile, I wanted to finish, uh, I'll just try to summarize really briefly what I didn't get to go through, which is uh, the last part I wanted to talk about, which is the Chinese innovation ecosystem and all innovation ecosystems in general, what do you really need? Um, and are the Chinese regulations supportive of these three things? So what I would argue is generally you need talent, you need um, access to capital, and then you also need robust capital markets, right? So with talent, I think I'm just going to cite a stat that probably many of you heard, which is that um, it seems that by 2025, China is going to have double the STEM PhDs that we have in the U.S. And if you uh, actually exclude international students, it's going to be more like three times. Um, I think on this respect, you see China really putting forward a lot more money into higher education, especially around STEM. In fact, over 70% of programs in China are uh, don't even have any liberal arts um, in their universities. I, I don't know if that's actually a good thing or not, but um, very heavy focus on STEM. And um, in fact, you could argue that on the regulatory side, it's really the U.S. keeping out Chinese international uh, students for a very large contingent that is almost helping China, right? On the capital side, what I would say is most people don't realize this, but China actually has a very robust domestic capital uh, generation system now. So uh, as of five years ago, um, China has already, uh, R&B venture investments have already over overtaken uh, USD. Now it's kind of gone up and down over the years. So I would say, think of it as a 40-60 split. Um, you know, it's not like 80-20 split, but uh, R&B is becoming much more sophisticated and there are uh, more regulations coming in place that really encourages more long-term investments. Um, and that's what that's what really China really needs. That, that's actually why there is a lag and that's why there is an opportunity for US dollar funds because China doesn't have as robust of a system as there could be. Uh, but that is, uh, we're going in the right direction there. And finally, in terms of capital markets, the evidence is even more visible there where in the last two years, or last three years, I guess, uh, there have been two separate tech innovation uh, specific 
uh, stock exchanges set up in China. In fact, the last one in Beijing that was just launched last month, I think, I think from announcement to when it began trading was something like uh, two months time, right? So you're seeing that the Chinese government on the regulatory side, on the policy side, truly understands that, that these pieces need to be in place uh, for entrepreneurial activity to flourish. And so instead of focusing on you know, purely the uh, regulations that we we're talking about earlier that were punitive in nature to certain idiosyncratic problems in China, you have to look at the greater policies that are uh, taking place that are uh, going to shape not just, for example, ed tech, but, but all uh, entrepreneurial endeavors in general. Um, now for, I guess, some, some rebuttals. Um, what I would say is, uh, so Matt makes really good points about, again, the negative, um, I guess you could think of it as a negative blacklist of industries um, that the Chinese regulations have hit pretty hard in the last year and a half. But again, I would say on that category, uh, on those, uh, or sorry, on that list, it really is just after school tutoring and maybe gaming. So um, gaming, I try to explain that basically this is something that was a very, very long time, uh, long term in the making. And uh, for after school tutoring, I think that is probably the bigger question mark, whether or not uh, other industries may be subject to the fate of something like after-school tutoring where there is sort of this sudden crackdown, I don't know. But what I can share is that there are three really large trends that are, so if you think of that as a negative black list and you think of uh, a, a different list as a, uh, I don't know, green list, <laughs> green, like industries where the Chinese uh, government and society and the markets have made it really clear that are okay and encouraged and actually in big industries for people to go into, then I think that list is much more interesting, much more impressive. So let me talk about uh, what I perceive are, this, are the three. So one is climate tech. Um, uh, one is uh, cross-border, so internationalization, globalization of Chinese companies. And the third one is, um, what was the third one I had? Gosh, I can't think of it at the moment. Uh, oh, sorry. The third one is industrialization. So digitization of Chinese manufacturing industry. Yes. Okay. There we go. So uh, on climate tech, I just wanted to briefly explain that um, you. I don't know if people are aware, but again, China has uh, agreed to reach zero net emissions by 2060. It actually hasn't peaked yet, right? So it's agreed to peak carbon emissions by 2030. So we're in 2021 right now. It hasn't even peaked yet. And it's giving itself only 30 years to reach net uh, zero net emissions. The U.S. and Europe in comparison actually already peaked in the Europe actually in 1979. So um U.S. and Europe both have given itself 45 and 71 years, respectively, uh, whereas China is going to give itself like only 30 years um, after peaking. So uh, what that means is that that's a huge opportunity for just carbon neutrality, right? The drop off will have to be extremely steep. If you graph it out, it looks like this steep, really, really steep drop. And it's an immense opportunity. And we can see like uh, Chinese entrepreneurs are already taking advantage of this. So. Uh, Bloomberg had, for example, a really great list of the green billionaires, and I think it was like the majority of them were from China, because uh, while China may not have the most 
advanced semiconductors, it has been working on things uh, in the past few decades, like battery technology, that where uh, China has some of the most advanced battery technology companies in the world. So Tesla, for example, uh, uses uh, batteries from cattle, CATL, that is now the fourth largest Chinese company by market cap. And um, the founder is, I don't know how rich she is, but like a very, very, very rich person. So um, China is off to a really impressive start in climate tech. And we're just at the beginning. Again, China hasn't even peaked uh, in terms of carbon emissions. Um, the third one I wanted to talk about was the industrialization, right, of, uh, of Chinese manufacturing industry. So again, China has made a uh, decision that it wants to maintain its uh, like roughly 20 plus percent in manufacturing uh, of its GDP. Uh, and it doesn't want to go the route of the U.S., which has let manufacturing really decline in, in, in percentage of GDP. Uh, it wants to be more like uh, Germany. And what that means is that there's just like a huge opportunity because China does not plan to give up on manufacturing to increase the um, efficiency. And right now, um, China's already done a lot in terms of, like I think Matt mentioned, industrial robotics. But you'd actually just, uh, if, you, if you look at some of the investment specific deals and specific innovation that's happening in China, there, there's just a lot of enterprise software and AIoT. So uh, using AI and connecting IoT, especially in factories, uh, that is getting a lot of uh, investment and getting a lot of traction. And that's just because, again, manufacturing is 20% plus of the Chinese economy. So if you just apply, um, this is, I'm just quoting a leading, or not a leading, like one of the leaders of the Chinese uh, economic development um, uh, committee. I don't know how to exactly translate it, but he was the former um, mayor of Chongqing, Huang Jifan, and he speaks a lot on the economic policy when it comes to innovation. And what we can see is that uh, the way that the Chinese government thinks about it in terms of uh, policy and encouraging innovation is that this is such a huge, huge category, huge amount of GDP. If you just increase efficiency by 5%, then we can generate something like $2 trillion of, um, you know, economic benefit, right? So we're not even trying to, you know, get to total automation or anything like that. We're just getting to some of these companies right now. All they're working on is just getting machines to talk to each other. So you know when to turn them off if you're not using them. So you can save on power or you know when to order supplies because you know when you're running out. So um, things like that, these are huge, huge, huge categories for China because of the scale of the industries we're talking about that it can affect and also because of the uh, attention, again, from the regulatory perspective and policy perspective, maybe regulatory is not the right word, but policy perspective, that China wants to encourage these um, innovations. Thank you, Ray. Really, really uh, in-depth discussion, as well as thank you for adding the rest of your initial presentation. So now we're, I would like to move this to Q&A. Uh, for folks who are online, you can type your question into the chat box and it will show up and uh, both the speakers and I will be able to take a look at them but I will try to curate some of the questions for the speakers. Uh, so with that, as folks are um, typing in your questions, let me actually start off with a question for both speakers. So I noticed in your discussion about Chinese, uh, where China might head, both of you are talking about where China is now in terms of uh, China's crackdown on gaming, in terms of Chinese crackdown on after-school education. Where do you think China's tech crackdown might be, say, two or three years from now? 
I know Matt, you talked a bit about this. So I just want some discussion, if you have any insights at all on where you think this might go, say two or three years. Do you think this might stop? Or, or sorry, do you think China has done already most of its crackdowns or could this accelerate? We'd love uh, both of your thoughts on this. Maybe I'll go to Matt first and then to Ray. Sure. Um, I think that the kind of like the pace of activity almost has to slow down a little bit just because there's been so much kind of thrown at the wall in a lot of ways. I think probably what we're more likely to see is uh, how to put it like a slightly more organized and strategic set of initiatives. So, you know, uh, the one that I've been looking at lately is um, China's plans for governance of algorithms. Um, this is something where you know, there was tons and tons of activity over the last five years. And then in the last sort of six months, um, the Cyberspace Administration of China has come out with first a set of uh, proposed regulations around um, uh, recommendation algorithms. And then it basically came out with a, a three-year plan. Maybe plan is slightly overstating it, but it's like a roadmap. It said over the next three years, we want to get from, you know, A to Z on regulating algorithms specifically for internet service providers. This kind of goes to the uh, wanting, you know, deal heavy handed with, you know, consumer tech or internet companies, but maybe leave some of the more industrial applications alone. So when I see something like that, you know, the, maybe some of the early, uh, like the, when it came out with the recommendation algorithm regulations, um, that might've been a little bit of a surprise or it might sort of force a kind of a quick realignment of things. But by coming out with this sort of three-year roadmap to things, I think that signals a slightly more sort of systematic approach to things. And I think, you know, when it gets to kind of the way that Ray bucketed it with ideology, or not, I'm sorry, not ideology, idiosyncratic stuff, which sometimes has to do with ideology, um, you know, keeping up with the Western setting, I think a lot of that sort of idiosyncratic specific issue type stuff um, you know, there was an element of like a power struggle or maybe not a struggle. It was the, the party reasserting its right to kind of do what it wants to with the big tech companies. And I think to a certain extent that message has been sent and has been received. So I think of that as maybe not a one-time shift, but kind of like a pull it back, you know, yank it over here. And then you can kind of be a little more systematic from there. So that might be a slightly more sort of positive outlook, seeing it going from like a lot going on in all different areas to a little bit more systematic approach to things um, in terms of like what sector might pop up next. I, I do feel like this kind of uh, opposition to just like gaudy lifestyles, fan culture, men who aren't manly enough for Xi Jinping. Like I think that kind of um, ideological strand is, is very strong. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those industries, which might be a little bit more entertainment, they might be consumer goods. I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of seemingly out of the blue actions in that area, um, but hard to like locate it exactly. Thank you, Matt Ray. Yeah, I, I agree with Matt. I think that it's very hard to predict, right? Like some of these, yeah, more random things, um, uh, especially as they were cultural or responding to changes in society. Uh, I, I think if I had to make predictions, then uh, going back to what I said earlier about looking at um, the regulation, sorry, looking at the sectors that are getting a lot of traction in terms of entrepreneurial activity and which are also sectors that China clearly wants 
uh, for there to be more innovation. So healthcare, right, enterprise software, which includes things like industrial automation, as well as advanced manufacturing, which includes things like D-Tech semiconductor manufacturing. I think these are things that you're going to see more regulations around. So, so healthcare, for example, no expert on healthcare. I barely take a look at it, but uh, you know, I've recently just noticed in the course of doing uh, research for, for other uh, companies that uh, China is putting out um, regulations about, for example, uh, central, uh, what do you call it, central procurement of pharmaceutical uh, drugs, right, and, and, and maybe devices, I'm not really sure, uh, but that in turn changes really how the dynamics of the entire industry, right, like how companies could price their products, uh, how that works, and putting certain caps on uh, drugs, for example, right, these are all things that um, I think are going to be probably, uh, we're going to probably see more regulation going forward as it becomes more and more advanced. So, um, yeah, again, Consumer internet, I think, already has, I wouldn't say necessarily that there are no more regulations coming, but um, maybe there are more in terms of AI uh, algorithms and such, but the bulk of new regulations might be from industries that are still emerging at this point. Just chipping in there, I think that the medical tech sector is going to be a really interesting one to watch because it's really kind of right at that crossroads of China would really like to upgrade the capabilities and, uh, and the quality of its like healthcare system. But this is also a very, uh, you know, one that very much touches on sort of uh, obviously like personal privacy issues. It very much touches on some government monopolies. It touches on a lot of like really tense sort of areas. So I think whether and how they're able to sort of strike that balance in, in medical technology areas or medical AI areas, will be kind of indicative of how sort of sophisticated and responsive regulation might be going forward. Thank you. So uh, Matt, at, uh, for a question directed at you, we saw several questions asking about the relationship between innovation for consumer technology uh, versus innovation for uh, deep as well as industrial technology with some asking, could innovation on consumer tech drive innovation in the industrial and deep technology? Could you just elaborate a little bit about this issue? Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, there, there is a real history of this, specifically in the United States, where so much of the uh, innovation that went into sort of found, founding the, the foundation of the internet and a lot of other things was spinoffs of uh, sort of military R&D, of uh, intelligence R&D, and a lot of other areas like that. I'm not like a historian of, of Silicon Valley in that way, but I do think that's what people might be kind of gesturing at. It's how to put it, it's almost like so sort of like long term and forward looking that I can't quite like draw the line myself between these two things. I think, you know, the fact that the Internet uh, came out of some government funded projects and, and some military affiliated projects is like that's a pretty big deal, you know, but it also, you know, if the Internet hadn't happened, we probably would have far fewer examples where this was kind of earth changing. So. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I'm not sure how well the historical analogy of like the U.S. in the 1950s, sort of 50s, 60s to China today might work in that area. Um, I, I, yeah, I guess I, I can see what people are gesturing at, but I don't know that I can draw the line myself. Sure, thank you. Uh, so two questions for Ray first, and then Matt, if you want to jump in on any of those questions. So the first question regard is with relationship to um, there's been quite a bit of discussion about uh, uh, Xi Jinping's common prosperity campaign. 
How does that relate to China's crackdown on tech companies? I think both of you covered it a bit, but I think this relates a lot to what, Ray, you're talking about, the idiosyncratic nature of some of the Chinese crackdown. So I'd love to get your uh, thoughts on this. And the second also relates to um, the comments that you made, Ray, about some of the winners uh, in terms of uh, the Chinese tech crackdown. I'd just like to you elaborate a little bit more on what, who are some of these winners? Uh, I think you mentioned some of the smaller companies, but if you could elaborate a little bit more. And then Matt, if you want to jump in uh, after her, after she answers this. Thank you. Uh, the, uh, okay, I'll, I'll ask you for clarification on the second question. I'll answer the first question before I forget. So on the common prosperity thing, I think um, what is important to realize is that uh, this is not just some communist ideal where like everyone is happy and prosperous. It's that there is an economic basis for China, uh, at least if you, if you, if you talk to Chinese regulators, uh, if you list, read what Chinese regulators have written, is that they believe that um, economic inequality re really leads to um, economic crisis and, of course, political instability after economic crisis, but it's easier to lead to economic crisis because if every time there is some kind of shock to your system, the bottom 50% or 25%, whatever it is, uh, gets wiped out, right? Uh, then, then number one, you don't have the internal consumption um, that allows your companies to and uh, enterprises to grow. But every time you have that happen, then you're giving what you're you're having one uh, segment of the population have no upward social mobility, and they're just going to have to start over again. That's bad again for all companies who are trying to service them, right? Because you effectively shrink your market. Um, by 25, whatever, 50% of the people that are affected. And we're, we're seeing that happening, happen, of course, in the pandemic, right, in the, in the, in the U.S. And, and also in China, that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poor. But to them, this is an economic crisis because, again, depending on what measure you look at for inequality, China's inequality, you could argue, is even worse than, than the U.S.'s, right, for certain specific measures. So this is a, this is a really, really big deal uh, for China. This is not just, you know, some kumbaya-like ideal. Uh, this, is a, this is like a very urgent question. And what you have showing up for common prosperity in the tech regulations specifically is that they're looking to protect the the poorest, right? So we're looking to protect small businesses and we're looking to protect individual workers, specifically gig workers previous, who previously in China had no rights. And these, a lot of those regulations that have been contemplated or passed as, I don't think any of them have been passed at laws. Most of them are guidelines right now, are very, very similar actually to what you see in the West, right? Giving um, gig workers, especially uh, the drivers, I think just got a uh, new guideline where they're, they need to be given social benefits. So you can be a gig worker, and there are many, many millions of gig workers now in China. Uh, but as a company, you can't just say uh, you're a contract worker, I fire you at will, and you know you don't accumulate any uh, insurance or social benefits, especially when you're hurt on the job or something like that. Um, I'm going to have to start be treating you more like an employee. So they're actually, I think, classifying these workers more as um, they're using a word like like, uh, I don't know how to translate it specifically, but it's not like a traditional employee, but it's also not as loose affiliation as gig workers. So again, the, the common prosperity stuff is really protecting the, uh, 
the, the people at risk that if there is any shock to the system, like a COVID, like a financial crisis in another country that somehow affects China, uh, which, you know, like climate change, all these things that are happening more and more often, that the, uh, the poorest of the poor don't get affected as much. There's also the element that uh, some companies have responded to common prosperity by saying we are going to um, invest in rural development projects or in some cases, I think they also put in green tech as, as stuff like this. But if you, again, if you actually read what the government has said, these were number one suggestions and these were actually meant to be donations from the billionaires themselves, not the companies. So the companies sort of like, almost like hijacked it into a ESG, uh, I don't want to call it PR stunt, but kind of, because uh, most of these are not actually donations or philanthropic projects. They are, they're basically wrapping their current business initiatives as ways to be more seemingly more aligned with, uh, with these common prosperity objectives. Now, I think it's a little disingenuous because a lot of these uh, objectives are actually some of the places where you see the greatest growth in Chinese economy anyways, like rural China is growing faster than urban China. So people are already investing there. Um, so an Alibaba or Tencent saying we're gonna invest in rural China. Well, they were actually already doing that. Some of, them, some of their initiatives date back to 2014, um, but now they've like just made it to be more politically correct, I would say. But they, they're on the regulations front, it's really to yeah protect the, the the laborers and a specifically small businesses. Thank you. I think you answered my second question too in your oh, response okay. to the first question. So perfect. Um, let me just turn the floor to Matt and I think we'll need to wrap up here. So Matt, anything you want to add to this? Sure. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is the kind of like ideological or perception level to the common prosperity stuff. Because I think it's right that protecting gig workers, um, that's one of the clearest kind of like worker protection movements. Uh, and that's a very good thing. Um, I think, you know, along with the goal of actually protecting people is the goal of sort of shaping how we think about society and what we see in society to make it seem more equal and to kind of like push down these like extravagant lifestyles and stuff like that. I think that's the other part of it. And that's going to be a little more you know, one, it just like gets into like, you know, policing culture, which is not that much fun, I think. Um, but also it, it makes it a little bit more erratic what might fall under the sort of the rubric of excessive lifestyles or promoting the wrong kind of culture, that type of thing. I think that's the, the sort of trickier element on top of it. Yeah, yeah. And if I can add to that, um, I agree with Matt. Um, and there are many things that China considers, for example, uh, like, uh, I don't know if this is technically illegal, but if you read the Communist Youth League's um, internet report on, on minor internet usage, right? The number one inappropriate content that they see, that they cite as being problematic on the internet that they want to tamp down on is uh, people showing off that they're rich, right? This is probably not a content, like type of content that in the US anyone would really care about. But in China, like, the government thinks this is inappropriate and wants to shield uh, minors from it. And, you know, again, people I'm sure have very different opinions on whether or not they should be doing that. But I'm just saying there's like, there are very, very different boundaries um, that especially when it comes to types of content and more like softer things, we're not talking about like porn or gambling, um, you know, very obvious vices that, that, um, 
that like China cares about more and is going to be regulating more where uh, where we would not care about in the U.S. Thank you, Ray. So the interest of time, I think we'll need to wrap up here. But before we do so, I did want to uh, do another poll to see uh, uh, if the discussion had changed people's views either way. So I am starting the poll right now. Um, and you should have, I'll give folks uh, about a minute or so to poll. And then uh, as we're doing that, I do want to preview our next uh, China Power discussions. So um, uh, thank you. So looking forward, our next event for China Power is our third debate and our second keynote on December 14th. So our third debate will begin at 8.45 a.m. on December 14th. It will focus on Afghanistan and we will be asking two leading experts, one from China and one from the United States, to debate the proposition that China will establish itself as the most influential external power for Afghanistan. On the for side, we have senior Colonel Zhou Bo from Tsinghua University. And on the against side, we have Dr. Seth Jones from CSIS. After this debate, we will have our keynote, our, our second keynote of the conference, and it will be Senator Steve Daines. And he will be discussing how Congress views the challenges and opportunities associated with China's growing power. So with that, let me uh, end the poll. We have um, quite a number of folks who uh, participated and the polling results are, um, you should be able to, uh, sorry, I'm sharing the polling results now. Uh, I think uh, I see a very slight shift uh, in the poll numbers. But I would I would say that you know it's very small difference in terms of forty nine percent to fifty one percent. That's a meaningful shift. It was fifty seven forty three of the people live here, so I lost eight mm percent. -hmm. What are you gonna do? Well, thank you, Matt, and thank you, Ray. I think this just means this is a really great discussion where both sides presented very convincing views, and it caused folks to, some folks to change their minds.